chapter 3, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 3, uh, sorry, verse 7 through verse 9. I'll begin reading from verse 1 of Ephesians 3. This also is God's holy word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom you have bold, boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. <clears throat> May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you, Father, for you give us that which is good. You've given us your word. It is clear. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is necessary. And Father, you've given us also your Son, who is the word incarnate, that he is the one who is perfect. He is without spot or blemish, that he is a sufficient sacrifice for sinners. And Father, we pray in thanks for this good news. Father, we acknowledge that the world hears this message and they say it's foolishness. And Father, we pray that we would never doubt that it is your power unto salvation. Father, may we cherish the gospel all the more. May you help us to see our need for it all the more, even as your Holy Spirit reveals to us our sin and our need for a Savior more each day. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus would indeed be high and lifted up in our hearts, that Jesus would be high and lifted up in his church. And Father, we pray if any are here who do not know you in a saving manner, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work, drawing sinners to true faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Here I think about the gospel ministry. And in this era, in our nation, in our society, <clears throat> you think about how low of a status the gospel ministry has. And throughout church history, there's been these extremes, right? The, the right view is that razor's edge right in the middle. <clears throat> but <clears throat> the vast array on one side, you have the abuse. If you have the, the overreach of church power, where people in the church have, have not exercised church power as they ought to have done. Instead, they've reached for a other power, greater power, power that they should not have. And they've wielded it as they would an axe to harm. The church is, has history throughout time of this massive overreach of church power. And then on the other side, this wide path also of those in the church despising and rejecting legitimate church power and church authority. What? You're going to excommunicate me? You're going to tell me I'm not a Christian? To hell with you. And, and to think that this... This, these two wide paths, abuse and overreach of church power, and then a despising and a rejection of legitimate church power. And then we have in the middle, we have this razor's edge, where the gospel ministry, it's ordained by God, that we in the church ought to have a high respect 
for a God and for the ministry of the gospel because we ought to have a high cherishing and a high respect of the gospel itself. Because our Lord Jesus must be high and lifted up in our lives. Here, when we think about this book of Ephesians, the Lord gives us our Lord Jesus presented as the glorious Savior of his bride, the church. And this mystery, mystery is made known. This mystery is mentioned in various parts of this short epistle. Even in this chapter 3, spoken of, this mystery of Christ and Paul's insight into it. In Ephesians 1, we talked about how salvation was planned, that all three persons of the Trinity played a significant role in the salvation of sinners. And here we, we think about how sometimes for people, the theorists, right, that grand plans fail because practically they can't happen. But our God is one who is eminently practical. He, he is very practical. This is what we learn about in Ephesians 2 at the beginning. This is, is speaking about the fall of man and, and how we are dead in trespasses and sins. It doesn't say that we are desperately sick. It says that we are dead. We're not dying. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And here in Ephesians 2, we have the salvation executed. That it's carried out by God. That there's actually people who are saved. And the proof of that is that those who lived in darkness, who loved darkness, and despised the Lord Jesus, they are now the ones who are proclaiming Him and loving Him. And you ask, how does that happen? It only happens when there is the power of the Holy Spirit transforming the life of a sinner. And then here in Ephesians 3, we have the good news coming through the stewardship of an apostle. That the apostle was called. He was called to a work. He wasn't called to take this good news and hide it for himself and cherish it only for himself. He was called to make it known among the nations. The same people that he despised. The Gentiles. The ones that he would literally call, these are dogs. You think about what, what the Jews knew about dogs. Dogs, dogs are animals that, that eat their own uh, refuse. They, they eat their excrement. They eat the excrement of other animals. And, and they would use this term to describe Gentiles, yet we have the Apostle Paul. He was called by God to bring the good news of the gospel to those whom we once thought are dogs. And now he realizes that they are created in the image of God. And they need to hear this good news that they might be saved. And he delights. He suffered on their behalf. So here, this passage is about the gospel ministry. That God calls and equips his ministers with gifts and graces primarily to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. God calls and equips his ministers with gifts and graces primarily to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. We'll look at this in four points. The first is the title of a minister of the gospel. <clears throat> Second, the touchstone of a minister of the gospel. Third, the trait of a minister of the gospel. And fourth, the task. So the title the touchstone, the trait, the task. So the first is the title of the minister of the gospel. There in the first half of verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister. Here we, we think about what the apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians 3. This good news comes through a stewardship that God called the apostle Paul. That there wasn't anything worthy about him. That he fully acknowledges that in 1 Timothy 1 when he called himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. So he's saying, hey, if there's any qualifications, those three, I was a blasphemer, a, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Those th three things, in fact, should absolutely disqualify me. There's no merits that, that Paul could claim. And here he speaks about uh, how... It was the Lord Jesus who called him on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That the Apostle Paul was given this stewardship. Hey, you, you have this, this message and you are a steward of it. A steward is someone who is accountable to someone else. Hey, you've been entrusted with this. Now go, do with it. And here you think about how... In verses 3 to 6, he explains this mystery. And, and specifically is that the Gentiles are also included into the body of Christ. 
with the Jews, that they are one body, that Jesus has made a new humanity, that we are created new, that, that we, are, we aren't focused on all of our differences. Oh, I, I, I'm like this and you're like that and we're all different. No, no. If we're focused talking about our, how we are new creation in Jesus Christ. That, that is how unity will come about in the church, not, not when we focus on our differences, but rather when we focus about how we are created new in Jesus Christ. In verses 7 through 9 in our passage today, Paul explains his role as a minister and preacher of this good news. In verses 10 through 13 of chapter 3, that God's plan was that through the church, <clears throat> I, I may be wrong, but it seems as if this epistle of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 10, this is the first mention of church. First, first time that the word church was mentioned, even though this whole, this whole epistle is speaking about the church and God's plan for his bride, the church. Here we have the term in verse 7 of this gospel that's made a minister. The, the, the term there used is actually deacon, diakonos. And it refers to a table waiter, someone who serves food. If you want to understand what this was about, go, go read Acts chapter 6, when the apostles, that they had in, there was an issue there in the early church, that there was uh, the overlooking of a certain group. So you had the, the, the Hebraic Jews, and then you had the Grecian Jews, and, and I forgot which one, but what one well, one, one of the group of, of, of widows was being overlooked in the service of food. And here they said, we should not neglect the gospel ministry in order to serve tables. What they didn't say was, this is worthless work. We ought not to do it. What they said was, this is worthy work. We will find men who are filled with the spirit, who are filled with grace to go about and do it so that we would focus on the ministry of word and prayer. So you see, they, they didn't say this was unworthy work. This, they said this is work that's worthy of the church. And then the deacons were those who were appointed to do this work. Here we, we think about a table waiter, one who serves food. And then we, we think about how this term deacon it means more specifically one who executes the commands of another. He executes the commands of another. He's ex he executes the commands of God. Specifically, a minister is one who is not executing his own commands. We see this manifested in the life of our Lord Jesus. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come so that people would serve him. He came so that he would serve others. And he served to the utmost. He willingly laid down his life on behalf of sinners. Here, we think about how this term deacon, diakonos, that scriptures, the scriptures use it specifically. We see that in the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> but it also uses the term generally as a servant. Uh, Phoebe <clears throat> was a servant, a, a diakonos. <clears throat> and here, regarding a minister of the gospel, regarding all Christians being servants, those who carry out the commands of our king. And perhaps some of you, even as we think about this passage you, you might be thinking, you know what, this doesn't apply to me. This doesn't apply to me. He's, he's talking about gospel ministers. It applies far more broadly than you think. So there are some specific things that apply only to the gospel ministers, but throughout this passage, what's true of a gospel minister is also true of a ruling elder. What's true of a gospel minister is also true of a deacon in the, in the church. Those are the three offices, ministers, ruling elders, and deacons. But what's true about ministers, it should also be true about every one of you as a Christian. Right? It's just supposed to be more highlighted for a minister. That's true for every one of you as a Christian. We see the significance of this title, that of deacon. As a minister, the work of a gospel minister is ministerial and declarative. Now, now someone might say, no, no, wait a minute. You're, you're, you're giving a truism. A minister, he... he 
His work is ministerial. Well, I should explain that. Ministerial meaning it's for the sake of service. That a minister serves others. It seems like often it's menial tasks, menial tasks, menial duties. That a minister serves others. And it's declarative, meaning that he is one who is called to declare God's word. That should be his overwhelming focus. That the Lord doesn't call ministers to proclaim their own opinions. That if that's what I'm doing from the pulpit, if that's what I'm doing in the church, I ought to be rebuked for that. Because my opinions matter nothing. What matters is the word of God. The word of God would go forward. That, it's, that the work is ministerial and declarative means that it is not magisterial and legislative. Magisterial meaning belonging to a master or a ruler. Someone who lords it over the people. That a minister is not called to lord it over anyone. He's also not called to be legislative. You think about the three branches of government, judicial, executive, and legislative. So uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate, that their job, their, they were elected so that they might draft and enact laws. This is how we understand our legislative branch. They draft laws and then they enact them. But that's never the case for a minister. A minister is never allowed to make up rules. He's never allowed to make up rules for his convenience or to lord it over other people. All we can do is, you know what? Chapter and verse says right here. This is what the Lord calls you to do. And though the temptation would be there, hey, this person's not getting it. We have two tools in our toolbox. You open the toolbox. What we got? The word of God and prayer. That's all we got. Sometimes, joke about it with Wayne. Hey, sure would be nice if there were maybe a two by four in there. And then on, on one end, a two by four has a nail driven through it. You know, hey, it might be helpful for some people. It's helpful for me, I would think, to, to beat myself on the head with that two by four. But you know what? We have the word of God and we have prayer. And throughout time, a minister, a friend of mine, I interned with him. He told me this. I didn't get it when I was younger. He said, oftentimes what I do is I, I pray for people. And I said, well, you have the other tool. And he says, yeah, you're right, you do. You have the word of God. But in order for them to be changed by the word of God, their hearts must be open to receive. And no matter how much you speak, how much, how much you teach, and you talk to them, unless their hearts are open, there is no change. And he says, young man, that is where prayer comes in. That is where prayer comes in. Here, listen to the way that Paul describes it in the first half of verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister he didn't say, of oh, this gospel, I made myself a minister. Very different. Very, very different. Paul did not call himself, did not appoint himself to be a minister. And the way we understand these things is that ordination, how someone is laid hands on, it's always passive. This was passive, that, that God was the one who made Paul the ministry. He equipped him for the ministry. He called him to the ministry. That he was on the road to Damascus, hell-bent on, on dragging Christians into prison to persecute them. The last place you would expect a call to come. <clears throat> Here, we think about what's called a direct commission, that... The Apostle Paul was one who received a direct commission from Jesus Christ. And that doesn't happen anymore. That doesn't happen. That, that, that happened for the Apostle. It doesn't happen today. We don't have direct commissions from Jesus. It only comes indirectly through the church. And even though the Apostle Paul had a direct commission from Jesus, 
there's still the pattern in the scriptures that say that the church confirmed even that direct commission from Jesus. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This right hand of fellowship was not this, oh, yeah, you're a fellow Christian, that's great. No, 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 this was the right hand of fellowship. This man also was called as an apostle. The church recognized that calling. <clears throat> Here, we think about how the gospel ministry comes through the church now. 1 Timothy 4.14 Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Have you ever witnessed an ordination of a minister, a ruling elder, or a deacon? It comes with the laying on of hands in prayer. There's two parts to this call to the ministry. And no one enters the ministry without both parts. There's the internal sense of call. This is the personal desire of a, of a man for the ministry. It's a subjective sense. That there's a sense of, I, I feel like I'm being called to the ministry. That there's an eagerness for it. There's a desire for it. 1 Timothy 3.1 The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Here, this is where the internal call often gets put on a pedestal. Where... The church, those in the church would say, well, this person's called, feels like he's called to the gospel ministry. Who are we to question that? But here, you also understand that the internal call is often what comes to question when difficult times come in the ministry. Not seeing the results that they want to see. People not being willing to listen to them. The reality is that oftentimes men who sense this call to the ministry do so for entirely the wrong reasons. Perhaps I should ask you, for those who desire the ministry, why do you desire it? What is the reason? What are the reasons why you seek it? Desire for office sometimes is in order to get respect or honor. Wayne and I talk about this often. You don't get honor and respect in ministry. You get dishonor and disrespect. Right? Don't, don't think that the office obtains you this respect. No, it will rob you of that respect. You'll be despised. People will say to you, who are you to tell me God's word and tell me that I'm in sin? What right do you have to do that? Well, this is what the Lord has called us to. But we're responsible for your soul. Well, and then, and then all, all the expletives come out again. Right? Or perhaps the desire to be an authority over others. The authority and power that a minister or a, a ruling elder or deacon have is, is never for their own privilege. It's not to lord it over others. It's never for self. It's for the benefit of others. Perhaps for some young men, they like to study the Bible. They like to talk about theology. That's good. That's good. But you realize that the ministry is far more than just that. Far more than just being able to study theology. There's also the external call. This is the church confirming. So a young man desires the ministry. First, let him be tested. Right? We're told, first let him be tested. The church confirms the man's internal sense of call by recognizing, well, this man has both the gifts and the graces. The world tends to focus on the gifts, the abilities. But you look at the scriptural requirements for office, the focus is always on the character, the graces of such a man. And this external call, contrary to the internal call, which is subjective, the external call is, is objective. The church recognizes, well, this person, for example, if you have some kind of issue that comes up, you ask yourself, who are the people that I would contact to get advice and help. That those are the people that should be ordained for office. 
because those are the ones you naturally look to for guidance, for help, for prayer, for leadership. The church, the body recognizes the man's sense of call. I had a friend, gospel minister, who was dealing with a young man who was insistent that he had the gifts and the character for the ministry. And uh, he tested him. He allowed him opportunity to teach. And uh, he and, and the whole church came to very, very quick conclusion that this man did not have the gifts. But he, he insisted, I have the gifts. And then he said, okay, fine. We're not going to argue about that. You have, the, you have the gift of teaching. Just none of us have the gift of listening to you. All right? <laughs> and, and he says, is that, is that any better? And he says, okay, I, I'm getting it now. It's good, good. Okay, so, so we, we don't need to argue about all the details. Right? We, we come to the same conclusion. But you realize that this internal and the external call must go together. Right? If, if the church recognizes this man, man, this, this man is gifted. This man has a character to be a minister or a ruling elder or a deacon. But then he, he can't bring himself to do it. He says, no, I, I, I can't do it. Well, well there's one, one without the other. There's also the man who insists, hey, I, I, I'm called to this. But the church doesn't recognize, no, this is not a man that we would follow when difficult, time, difficult times come. Then it won't happen either. And here we were reminded about the title, that a minister is a servant, that God's people, the common Christian, were called to be servants of God. That's a very high title to be a servant. Paul even says, a bondservant. This is what we must be willing to do for others, that we would serve them. Here, the second point is the touchstone of a minister of the gospel. Second half of verse 7. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Here, think about this touchstone, the the quintessential feature or the test what makes a minister a minister I can try to summarize it in a few sentences he must be filled with the grace of God and the Holy Spirit and not full of himself that's one way to put it here you think back was it in the book of Numbers there was this man Balaam who was hired by Balak to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. And this man was disobedient, and, and the Lord eventually used this man's donkey. He was riding his donkey, and the donkey spoke and rebuked him. And here we, we think about how God can use an ass of an animal when he chooses to, and that we should not, we should not be asses of humans, right? We shouldn't be, shouldn't be asses of humans. The minister is one who must be fully dependent on God, trusting in the Lord and not in himself. Here, we think about this touchstone, and it's a constant sense of his own powerlessness, a constant sense of his dependence on God. This is... The essence, this is the quintessential feature of a minister as he realizes he is powerless. He's not trusting himself, he's trusting in God. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You, th- you think about how for these open pulpits, the church minister retires, minister died, minister left, they're interviewing people, so... What can you do for us? And you think about how they, they'd be oohed and awed by all these people who come in and say, oh, I can do this and this and this. And I mean, how, how, how well would it stand if the ministers, I could tell you all the things I failed in. Right? Like, let me tell you about all the, all the failures I've had. That's not what we want to hear. Well, what I'm going to tell you is that I'm completely powerless to do anything. So then, then what do you do? I depend upon God. And here we ask, is, is this a good description of the gospel ministry? Well, I don't know what other description you can have. A man who must be full of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the power of God, not trusting in himself. 
here the change that must take place manifested in the greater perceived need. It's not a greater need. The need is always the same. It's a greater perceived need for prayer in his life. And this is that demonstrated dependence. Can you change the hearts of men? No, I never have and I never will. Can you change your own heart? No, I can't. I can't change my own heart. Well, how are you going to change the hearts of others? I can't. What I can do is pray for them, guide them, be an example to them. I'll fail in every one of those. But this is what the Lord calls us to. We think also about the necessity of a converted ministry. I'm sure you can think about how dangerous it would be to have unconverted men in the ministry. Throughout history, you think about how, for political reasons, certain men were appointed to office in the church. What we see in this verse here, verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace. It's an acknowledgement that God's grace was necessary for the Apostle Paul. We see the effect is the change in his life. Do you acknowledge your own need for God's grace? You realize how little we'd be without his grace to us. Are you a sinner in need of God's forgiveness? God alone forgives sin. And he commands sinners to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. And he promises us in the good news of the gospel that he willingly receives and he gladly forgives sinners. So this is the touchstone. A man who is full of the spirit, not full of himself, who is dependent on God and not self-dependent. We have the third point, the trait of a minister of the gospel. In the first part of verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Here, that trait is humility. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. There's a progression. When you hear the Apostle Paul refer to himself, you think about the various things that he said. 1 Corinthians 15.9 For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So he says there, he's the least of the apostles. Oh, there's all these apostles. He says, hey, I'm on the bottom. And we have this passage. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Then 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You think about how the view of the apostle Paul regarding himself when he was persecuting the church on the road to Damascus, there could not have been a higher view of himself in his life. And that when Jesus came to him, that view of himself just came crashing down. And it wasn't as if he hit rock bottom. His view of himself continued to go lower and lower over time. And may this be true of you and me also as Christians. That our view of ourself would decrease. And our our high view of God would continually increase. That when you first profess faith in Christ, that you acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. And as time goes on, that you might say, I'm not merely a sinner, I'm a great sinner. And, and, and as, as you grow in Christ, you realize, well, wait a minute. You mean Christ died for all these sins? All of them? Yes, not, not just the ones that you know about and acknowledge. He, he died for every sin you've ever committed and will commit. He paid for every single one of them. And this, this should lead to a far greater view of our God and a, and a far lower view of ourselves. Here we, we think about the example of Moses that we read in Numbers chapter 12. The simple acknowledgement in the scriptures in Numbers chapter 12. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. It had to be true. Because you think about what he was called to. In various scenes. He's telling God. Listen. These people are about to stone me. Was he just exaggerating? I don't think so. They were upset. They were rebellious people. They were thirsty. 
you think about what Moses did. Here, the challenge came. It was from his own brother, Aaron, and his sister, Miriam. Apparently, Moses was younger. That Miriam and, and Aaron, I think, were older than him. And they were questioning, hey, has God spoken only through him? And you think about what Moses could have said. Here, Miriam was leprous. You think about how, oh man, that's my big sister. She beat me up even when I was younger. Hey, you deserve it, right? That's what you deserve, right? But listen to what he says. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Oh Lord, heal her, I pray. See how quickly, how quickly he turned when his sister was outside the camp, set apart from people, isolated. And he would say, yes, she sinned, but you know what? Lord, restore her. See the contrast. The sons of thunder. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. That there was some manner of rejection. So James and John, nicknamed the sons of thunder, sons of Boanerges, what was it? Lord, do you want us to command down fire to come from heaven to consume these people? Right? So they were rejected and they, they made a command. The people did not accept people did not accept what they had to say. Do you want fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And how these men obviously were of the right the wrong mind, and Jesus said that, hey, you are of a different spirit. He rebuked them. This is not how a minister ought to think. You see, the, the, the godly example of Moses desiring that her sister be restored. Here, we think about the humility required and the focus of a minister's teaching. There in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Here, the humility of not proclaiming oneself, but proclaiming Jesus Christ. Here, a minister must come. A Christian must come to his realization, well, what this person needs is not me. The only thing I can do is point this person to Jesus Christ because he is the one who deserves worship. He is the one who deserves praise. And you realize that there is a genuine temptation, a real temptation for a minister to cast off this humility. We see it even in the life of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Can you imagine that? Here, He's been given revelations. Who, who boasts about receiving revelations? Hey, God gave me revelations. What did, you, what did you do to earn it? Nothing. But you realize how quickly pride comes in there. That, that God, this was mercy from God saying, hey, I'm going to afflict you with this thorn. Because we know how, how sinners, any little thing, any, any little hole or crevice, Right? Dirt accumulates. Any little hole or crevice, pride creeps in there and says, Oh, look at me. And you think about how the Apostle Paul here was begging God, Remove this thorn, whatever it is. Remove it. And God says, No. This is actually grace for you that you would have this. Otherwise, you would exalt yourself in a great fall. And you ask yourself, What is the Lord doing in your life? What thorns do you have? What weaknesses are there? And you ask, Lord, take these things from me. And he doesn't. You ask yourself, well, why isn't the Lord answering my prayer? Could it be this very thing right here? That the Lord humbles us for purpose so that we might depend upon him. That we won't think of ourselves as self-sufficient. We see ourselves dependent, humble, on our knees in prayer constantly. And those difficult thorns, no one likes them. No one says, oh, this is great. These weaknesses that come, whether they be 
things about relationships, things about your health deteriorating. This is a reminder to us that we are weak, that we're not strong, we're weak. But the scriptures remind us when you are weak in yourself, then you are strong in the Lord. And that's what, that's what we need to learn is that we think when we're strong, we're, we're independent. But no, when we're, when we're sensing our independence, that is weakness, that is when the fall comes, right? This is when we fall in our pride. But, but God giving us this thorn reminds us that we are dependent, trusting in him. And that's actually for our good. That is mercy to us. Here we, we think about how the error of pragmatism creeps, in, creeps into the church so easily. Looking at some of these ministers, these celebrity ministers, that the church says, oh, look how the, all the crowds have followed him. How can we argue with that? See, that's, that's the error of pragmatism. Hey, there's a crowd that's there, right? And you look what Jesus does with crowds. He starts teaching the hard things of ministry and then the crowds dissipate, right? And then you look at the tragic results. So the celebrity minister brings all these crowds. And then as fast as he shot up in stardom, some kind of sin or scandal causes him to come crashing down like a shooting star. Pragmatism. This is what you have. And it's a reminder here that it's not just the gifts of the minister. You look at the lists in the Bible. The focus is on the graces. It focuses on the character. One of the first of which is this humility. The natural man focuses on those gifts and abilities. The scriptures focus on his graces and his character. And this humility is that grace, the mark of one's character. This is true also for you as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ that you and I would be those who are humble, that we would speak humbly, not boastfully, that we would not boast about the things we think we can accomplish, that we realize how little, next to nothing, that we can actually do, but rather we would have a greater dependence on our Lord each day. So that's the third point, the trait of a minister. We have the fourth point, the task of a minister of the gospel. The second half of verse 8 and verse 9. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here we, we think about the deplorable state of the gospel ministry today. It's because there's very little respect for the ministry that ministers start to focus on other things. Ministers don't know their primary purpose. And churches don't know the primary purpose of the gospel ministry in order to keep those ministers accountable. They they come up with alternative descriptions. I hear about ministers who get called and they say, hey, uh, what we're really looking for is this. And they share about all the things they hear. Okay, so yeah, there's a church in our presbytery or in our vicinity they're looking for a minister. What they've told us is that they're really looking for a bus driver, someone who's going to drive the church bus. They're really looking for um, someone to babysit their adult children in, in the youth group. Or uh, they're really looking for a political activist. They're really looking for a, a guy with really cool hair, looks good in torn jeans, and is a worship leader. Right? And, and you think about how some of these things are comical. Right? And minister must be willing to do the lowly tasks, right? willing to be the, the friend, the counselor, right? the therapist, whatever that might be. But his primary task is he's one who is called to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. When we look at John Calvin, a very simple example, people look at him, look at all these books he wrote, and say, man, if only I could be like that. I could just be this theologian, sit in, sit in my armchair and write all these theology books. But you look at what he did. He was, first, he was first a minister of the gospel. He was a pastor. He was a preacher. He wasn't a theologian first. He, he, he did all those other things, right? And we, we, we think about the, the works he leaves behind, but, but he was actually one who proclaimed the good news. I, I think there's, there's evidence that he, he preached almost every day of the week. 
right? That there were chapels there in Geneva, and he preached almost every day, sometimes twice, right? And, and you think about how he, he went around pastoring people, caring for them. His primary role was not a writer of theology books. He was a minister of the gospel. Here, this primary task. Is there anything greater that someone could be called to than to point sinners to their eternal hope in Jesus Christ? Many callings ought to be respected. But in the church, we ought to respect the gospel ministry. Because the gospel is good news for us as sinners. If ever I don't preach the gospel to you enough, often enough, clearly enough, you ought to rebuke me and say, hey, you went up there and preached the law. We didn't hear the good news of the gospel. We need to hear it every day. We need to hear it all the time. Because there's a reminder that the law only condemns us. Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is the one who saves us. He is perfect. I am imperfect. You are imperfect. Point us to our Savior. Tell us about these unsearchable riches. Here, this description about unsearchable. Some people are gifted in tracking others. You know, they, they look at footsteps. Animals, they can smell scents. Supposedly, in the grass. What animals are smelling is one, the person's scent, right? You have a shirt or a jacket, but then also they're, they're smelling the, the smell of the crushed grass. So when grass gets crushed by someone stepping there, they're seeing a path or they're smelling a path. And this unsearchable means that however good a tracker is, there's no footsteps. Regarding the sea, in the book of Acts, Acts 27, that uh, they crash landed in Malta, was at the ship, and they, they did soundings, right, where they have some method to, to measure the depth. One fathom is, is six feet, and they, they measured it to be 20 fathoms. And, and this idea of unsearchable means that they, they try to measure the depth. It cannot be measured. The riches of Christ cannot be measured. Where we come to understand this, we come to understand that we will someday part with all of our earthly wealth. And that when we die, not a penny of it will we take with us. That when we start to think that way, we start to think, wow, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's when these things in this life, we start to let them go and we realize, hey, the Lord's commanded us certain things to do with our wealth. The unwillingness to obey, no, no, that's mine. No, it's the Lord's. He's claimed, he's claimed ownership of all, of all of it. We start to let things go. We think about this unsearchable riches of Christ. The richness is in Christ Jesus himself. That he is our friend. He is our savior. He is our Lord. You ask yourself, in eternity in heaven, will there be enough time to think through all the greatness of our Lord Jesus? You think about some of these great games, championship games, and, and how people, for, for all their lives, they train so they can put on this little ivy wreath for their 15 minutes of fame. You realize, in heaven, it won't be our own glory. It'll be the glory of Jesus that we're going to be proclaiming and celebrating. And it's, it's not as if that time will ever come to an end. You know, I, I, think about, I think about the sermon, I think about the worship service, and you think about how some people give you these looks of, hey, you're going pretty long here, right? And, and I realize I need that sometimes. But at the same time, you think about heaven. Hey, I, I have some roast in the oven. i got to get back home. No one thinks that way in heaven. Hey, we're, we're proclaiming the name of Jesus. We're talking about his unsearchable riches. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. What is the gospel other than the power of God? The power of God to raise sinners from the dead. That that your sin, that my sins, do not keep us bound. Because Jesus came, he, he lived the perfect life. He died on the cross, he paid the price for sinners. What greater news is there than that? You want to talk about self-medication? How often do we reflect upon that message, this gospel message? You know what? Whatever troubles I face, right? You think about the world. The world is constantly saying, hey, we we need to have therapists, right? How, How common that is today. People need therapists. And I'm not saying that it's always wrong. No, not at all. People go and see therapists. But but is it because there is not the pattern of I'm going back to the gospel and finding my true spiritual therapy for my soul there. As, as time goes on, you would think, well, I don't need to talk to this person. I, I don't have to pay this person, right? Or the state doesn't have to pay this person to, t- to tell me good things about myself. What we have is the good news of the gospel. That, yes, you failed, but you have in Jesus a perfect Savior. And that is more than sufficient to cover for your sins. What greater news is there than that? Part of, part of maturity is coming to see how much the gospel brings us hope in our present situation and brings us joy, joy that is unending because we have in Jesus the unsearchable riches, eternal riches that do not come to an end. And so we ought to reflect on this often. That in the gospel, we have Jesus. And may he be sufficient for you and for me. That we indeed be overjoyed. That we indeed would say, there is no greater person. There is no greater hope. There is no greater message than this. I believe it. I trust in him. He promised my forgiveness. I turn from my sins because he has said that all who embrace Jesus Christ will receive forgiveness in eternal life. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you indeed are worthy of our praise. We pray, Father, that we might long...